in coding, really what you're doing is you're taking this big abstract idea and then you're breaking it up into sequential concrete pieces, right? This abstract idea becomes these sequential lines of code. Comics is very similar. You're taking this big abstract idea. It's like this big fuzzy cloud. And you have to take that big fuzzy cloud and break it up into these concrete pictures, these panels that fit in sequence. What does it really take to become successful as a writer or artist? There are a lot of destructive myths out there about what a creative career is supposed to look like. We're told we shouldn't care about worldly success or money. We're told that if we're good enough, everything would magically fall into place. That's a lie, and it keeps us struggling, baffled, and hungry for any shred of information that might shed light on how to keep making the work we love. That's why get any two artists or writers or any creatives really together in a room and it's a foregone conclusion that the conversation will turn to money and the nitty-gritty reality of being a professional creative. I'm cartoonist and creative business coach Jessica Abel. In my own life, those studio visit back-channel conversations with other artists where we share our insights and hacks, anxieties and red flags have been critical to any success I've achieved. And now, I'm bringing that conversation to you. This is The Autonomous Creative. My guest today is cartoonist Gene Yang. Gene creates comics that tie into his Chinese-American roots, including American-born Chinese, Boxers and Saints, and Dragon Hoops. He also works with franchise characters such as Superman, Avatar the Last Airbender, and Shang-Chi. Gene is a former high school teacher and current grad program prof and is deeply committed to comics as an educational tool. Witness his TED Talk on the topic and his role as the U.S. Library of Congress Ambassador for Young People's Literature. All that, and he remains one of the kindest, most engaging people in comics. In this interview, you'll hear all about how one goes from being a computer engineer and comp sci high school teacher to being a full-time cartoonist. Plus, what happens when you get a MacArthur Genius Grant? What changes after you do a TED Talk? I'll bring you the inside story right after this. This episode of The Autonomous Creative is brought to you by The Creative Engine. I talk to working creative people all the time, both on the show and in our membership, The Autonomous Creative Collective, and one of the biggest challenges they struggle with is procrastination. To most people, it feels like it's just a permanent character flaw, like they were born that way and doomed to suffer. But that's just absolutely untrue. Art is hard, yes, and we will all feel resistance to using that much cognitive energy on anything. But procrastination typically stems from specific root causes that are totally fixable. If your creative work is essential to you and who you are and your life, yet you still struggle with procrastination, and it just feels like, this is crazy, I want to invite you to check out the free Creative Engine Masterclass. This class will help you overcome your resistance and put your priorities first before you're derailed by everything else. The Creative Engine is a complete, simple, straightforward, and powerful framework that will help you pinpoint where your creative process breaks down and highlight exactly how to fix it. In it, you'll master the four essential phases of the creative process you need to produce awesome work reliably. And you're probably skipping at least one, possibly two, You'll learn how to predict and avoid the pitfalls that derail you time and time again. And you'll overcome self-sabotage, take back control, and keep moving even when things get really challenging. This class is totally free 
and you will get immediate deep clarity into what makes your creative life tick. So stop procrastinating and start finishing your most important creative projects by harnessing the power of your own creative engine at jessicaable.com slash engine. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L dot com slash engine. Now let's start the show. So Gene, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. I'm incredibly excited to get this chance to talk to you. I am really excited to get to do this too. So what are you doing right now, Gene? What are you working on? Like what's coming next? And what does your work life look like at this point? Well, right now, uh, I'm working on a monthly series for Marvel, and then I'm just ending another monthly series for DC, and I'm starting up like a mini series for DC. So those two, those two are going on right now. So for Marvel, I'm doing Shang-Chi, which is their kung fu superhero. He has a movie coming out in September, so he's getting like the most love he's ever gotten in like his history. Like in the history I saw the of preview. It looked amazing. It did. It looked great. It looked great. Yeah, I, I do think that with Shang-Chi, there's like a little bit of, you know, when I talk to my Asian American friends, we're like, this cannot be Marvel's first flop, right? You don't want him to flop on the Asian guy. <laughs> but we'll see. Hopefully it'll be good. And then DC, It looked good to me. There was a really good yeah. uh, bus fight scene that I was like, oh, yeah, when yeah, they, they nail right. the bus fight scene, I'm all in. <laughs> Any kind of fight on a moving vehicle, if they can do that. They're, they're good. Mm-hmm. And then for DC, I'm ending a run on Batman Superman. And I'm starting up a new project with them called The Monkey Prince, which is like this DC superhero based on the old Monkey King legend. It's an old Chinese legend. For a second, I have two different projects going on right now, but neither of them have been announced. So I can't really can't really okay. give details on those yet. But so your work for Marvel and DC, you are writing, correct? I'm only writing. Yeah, I can't I can't draw like that. But then your your personal work is with First Second and that you are writing and drawing, correct? So right now. Neither of those. Yeah, actually, right now I'm not drawing anything. I'm doing thumbnails. <laughs> I'm doing thumbnails for one of the projects I'm doing. For it's fine. It's fine. I, no judge. No judgment. It's fine. <laughs> well, I don't know how that happened. Actually, I do want to. I do want to draw again, but right now I don't have a project where I'm drawing. Okay, that yeah. it's cool with me, man. I love your writing. It's, <laughs> I mean, I guess the advantage of that is you can be working on four books at the same time. Yeah, you can be working on four books at the same time. Although, you know, so for one project, I am thumbnailing, and that does take more time. But I do want to get to a point where I'm drawing again. I just got to mm-hmm. figure that out. I think I got to get past a few of these projects. Yes. Well, I mean, four is a lot, no matter what your role is. So I guess one's winding down, one's in the middle, others are starting, you know, there's like a different stages and stuff. But how do you organize that? Like, how do you? Oh, if you have tips, I'd love to hear them. I got, I got tips. Like, that's what I do. But, you know, I want to hear how you do it. <laughs> okay. Here's how I try to do it. I try to think of my workday as two giant chunks of time, right? Like I have the before lunch chunk of time and the after lunch chunk of time. And for each chunk of time, I just try to devote it to just one project. And that doesn't always work out because I think um, what I've noticed is that for Marvel and DC, because it comes out monthly, the turnaround is really frenetic. You know what I mean? It's like sometimes like they'll send me something and they'll need like feedback on lettering or something like within a couple hours sometimes even. I can't always do that, but that, I think that's the ideal. The ideal is I work on one project during the morning and then I work on another in the afternoon. So you you really are in a position where you need to sort of budge all four forward at the same time. You can't just like take yeah. a month and do one. No, no, I can't do that. And I do try to, this doesn't always work out either. I 
this this is something that's happened to me as I've gotten older. But my brain works better in the morning, right? When when I was in my twenties, I think it worked better at night. But now my brain works better in the morning, so I do try to devote my morning time to whatever's the most difficult. So for me, the most difficult part of a project is like outlining, like figuring out what the mm-hmm. the bones of the of the story are. So I try to do that in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is hard. Although that's actually my favorite part. Is you it like that part? Yeah. Well, why? Because no, I love... that's not my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why is that your favorite? Because it's like I can get into like puzzle master brain. You know, where it's like, oh, I need to get from here to there. But in order to do that, I'm going to have to take this and this and this path. And, oh, if I come up with this little thing I can do, then everything clink, like clinks into place. And I got it. Okay. Okay. So it's like Um, a Tetris-like satisfaction. Yeah. I have a very strategic brain and that's just it very satisfying for me. It's not that it's not difficult and it's not frustrating because it is like, I definitely get frustrated by that, but especially mm-hmm. as I've gone through a bunch of work on developing storytelling tools, frameworks and things, mm-hmm. and I can use those to plug in and go mm-hmm. what's missing and figure things out. It's really satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess, I mean, I like having outlined just while I'm in the middle of it. I'm not as big of a fan. Oh, I just get very, very charged up. And especially if I'm talking about it, if I get to talk to somebody about it yeah. and not just do it in my head. Yeah. So do you do you try to work with a writing partner or anything like that? Or, I mean, most of your stuff is just you, right? Do you have somebody like an editor? Is that what you? I have a husband. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Who's also a cartoonist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I force him to listen to me sometimes. Okay. And, and, you know, other people too. But no, I mean, I, I realized way too late in life that I probably would have gotten along really well in a writer's room. But never did it and never had that. So I really, I value having that kind of collaborative experience. Yeah, yeah. This is not about me though. Let's get back to you. So <laughs> you're doing these four different books and I assume this is this is like how you're making your living, right? This is your full living at this point? It is. is. Writing comic yeah. books? Yeah, it is right now. So I've, I've only been full-time at cartooning for about six years now. So I left my, I was a high school teacher for 17 years, left that job in 2015 and I actually, so during those 17 years, like the second half of that, I was actually only part-time. But that was hard. It was really hard to leave my day job for a billion different reasons. And then since then, I've been doing, like, the bulk of our family's income is from comics, which is super scary. But that's how it's been going. Scary, but working, right? So far, so far. But I mean, like, th- this is one of the things that kind of freaked me out when I first went f- full-time is that at the beginning of the year, you really don't have any real idea of how much money you're going to make that year, right? Like you can guess, but you don't know for sure. It's not like when I was a high school teacher and before that I was a, I was a computer programmer for a while. You generally know how much money you're going to make in January, right? When you're trying to figure that stuff out, you know, by December, you're probably going to make this much. So that's helpful, right? When you have, when you have kids. And you do, you have four kids, right? Yeah. We have four kids. Yeah. No, I mean, I get that. I totally get that. I think that the way I was working when I stopped working on books regularly, I was working on a longer term model where I would get an advance that then I would work for several years on that and something else. Mm -hmm. So these are longer arcs. Mm -hmm. I would have more of an idea. And also, and this is a big difference and something that I think is really important to highlight is that I don't know how this works with your licensed work, but with your personal work, 
at least with American Born Chinese and probably with some of your other books, you have earned out your earning royalties and so you're getting royalty checks. And that's what you kind of don't know about. You know your advances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right? right. That's right. And yeah. most authors, including me, don't earn out. Your advance is what you get. Yeah, I mean, earning out, it's like 80% of books don't earn out, right? So I, I am lucky with American Born Chinese that it earned out. And I do have, definitely not all of my projects have earned out, but I do I do have a couple so it's uh, I've, right, I've, and those are sort of like the gift that keeps giving, right? Like you get, you have, a, yeah, you have yeah, like yeah. a steady backbeat of income from that that can kind of support the other yeah. work to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah, but, which but, I think is amazing. But, That's so great. But even with the royalty stuff, though, right? It's it is dependent on you finishing, mm-hmm. and like for Dragon Hoops, for example, I missed like three different deadlines. So at that point, I was already working for DC. And like one of the things I do like about a monthly book is that it gives you monthly income. And I was kind mm-hmm. of using that in, to, to replace my day job. But if I had solely been relying on Dragon Hoops, we would have had a hard time because I, it just took way longer than I was expecting it to. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's, I think, your point that you have to finish stuff in order for it to do anything. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's something I would like to highlight for everybody here. Like you yeah. have to actually finish the thing and put it out. Yeah, you have to finish um, the thing. Yeah. And for whatever royalties or not, it's like in order for it to start getting awards and getting attention and building. So even if you aren't going to earn out, if it's not going to earn out, there's still other ripple effects that only happen yeah. once the thing's published. That's I was right. talking about this in a coaching call the other day. And I was like, the main thing is just get stuff out there. And yeah, that's how you build something. And that really, I think, is your story in some ways, like going all the way back to self-publishing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is this is something that I've talked with all four of my kids, right? All four of them are creative. They like doing art. None of them like doing comics. They look at my job and they've told me over and over again, like I've asked them, oh, do you want to do what I'm doing? And they're all like, no, your job looks so tedious. It looks terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we want nothing to do with that, right? But they all like draw and that kind of stuff. And I do think that that's, I, I was just thinking like, what can I give them as their parent and i do think it's like the discipline to reach the finish line i think that's it's just people don't realize right i think when i was a kid i had this habit of just starting up a project and leaving it usually halfway through or three-fourths of the way through i just did it over and over and over again it wasn't until i was in my 20s that i figured out how to finish something and i do think there's something like like spiritual about it there's that book the war of art have you read that book mm-hmm. yeah where it talks it talks about how like there's something there's something inside of you that freaks out when you get close to the finish line and you have to figure out how to force yourself to the very end. So with our, with my older two, I've been, I've been trying to do that. I wanted them to take any creative project, right. That'll take a good amount of time, three, four months and just get to the finish line. So you know what that feels like. So it becomes familiar to you. Mm -hmm. So what do you do for, for my kids or for me? For you, how do you get yourself to the finish line? <laughs> so this was the the thing that pushed me over for my very first project. When I was in my early 20s, I was just graduated college. Up until that point, like through junior high and high school, I tried finishing comics. I never finished a single one. And I was like, I'm going to finish one. This is the thing I'm going to do. And I was living with three other guys, old college friends. And I told them, I said, we used to have house meetings once a week where we would like talk about bills and cooking schedules and that kind of stuff. And I was like, every that week at the house meeting. That is extremely mature of you. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it wasn't my idea. It was somebody else. It was somebody else in the house's idea. I think there was like a future businessman we were living with. But I was like, at the house meeting every week, I want you to ask me how far I got that week. 
on my mm -hmm. comic, right? And, and I think I budgeted that I was supposed to get like three or f four pages done a week. I was like, and if I don't get it done, I want you to make me feel bad about it. And they were really good at that. <laughs> they were super good at making me feel bad. And I feel like in some ways I, I internalized their voices and I've been able to do it even though I don't live with them anymore. So literally when you're trying to finish dragon hoops and you're in your whiffing deadlines, you're like being mean to yourself and saying like, you suck. I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. I, I mean, oh, that makes me sad. I, I've, I've gone through, uh, <laughs> I've gone through, uh, I've gone to therapy for this too. I don't want to lose that voice. I don't want to lose that voice in my head because I'm worried and I'm not going to be able to finish anything and my family will starve. But I also don't want it to like overrule everything else. Yeah, no, I mean, I deal with it myself. And I also help a lot of other people with that particular, like that voice is so common. That's the Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's talk a little bit about you do have sort of, I would say two main bodies of work, you have licensed character work that you're doing on monthly books or projects like that, including, you've done stuff with Batman and Superman, and you, you're doing Shang-Chi. And then you have self-generated work, I would say. So you have American Born Chinese, you have Dragon Hoops. I, you have a bunch of other projects. I'm not sure where they fit in there. So maybe they were fully collaborative or I don't know. But like, can you talk to me a little bit about how you think about those things? Do they feel different to you? Where do they come from? That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think the licensed stuff versus the, like the creator-owned stuff, it definitely feels very different. With the creator-owned stuff, I'm generally, like the best part of that is you're in full control of it. And usually, like, I'm just trying to express something in my own voice when I'm working on that kind of stuff. Or I'm trying to express something in the voice of my friendship with somebody. So I did a book with Sunny Lou called The Shadow Hero. And that really was, like, I felt like we were trying to say something kind of together. But it was just two people. And it's, it's still really personal. Whereas with working for DC Comics, which I do love, but it's a very different thing. I am looking for the overlap between what I'm interested in and the Superman mythos. For Avatar The Last Airbender 2, I was trying to replicate a voice that was from a television show while trying to figure out how to talk about what I'm interested in. So I think, I mean, I think there are advantages to both. The way I kind of think of it is when I'm working for DC or for Dark Horse Comics on the Avatar books, usually I'm part of a team with a lot of people on the team. And because there are lots of people on that team, I actually get an up-close look at other people's creative processes. And sometimes I could take what I learn and apply it to my own story. So for instance, with Avatar Last Airbender, I got to work really closely with Mike DiMartino and Brian Kanitsko, the two creators of the show. And they're both animators, right? They come out of, a, of an adjacent but different field. And the way they like beat out a story using post-its and index cards, that was something that I'd never really seen before. So I do that now. I do that now for my own comics as I beat things out. Yeah, very so cool. That's all from, that was all from them. But I mean, there are lots of little things like that that I pick up, like even from my editors. I, I think a good editor, they get to see the creative processes. They get like a bird's eye view of the creative process. And, and I, can, I can get stuff from them. Uh, yeah, well, and they work with so many different ones. people with different techniques and so on. Yeah, yeah I've had the same right. experience. I worked on a project briefly with Ronald Wimberly, and his way of using sort of film language to break down mm. a script was really influential on me. 
oh, and doing all my radio research, I learned all kinds of things about how narrative audio programs put together stories. And that was immensely helpful in sort of the structural thinking around stories. So I totally get what you're saying. I think that's really, really important. And then you can bring it back to your own personal work. One of the things you said there is like, what's great is you have full control over it, but it also sounds like having full control over it is a source of anxiety, perhaps. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a funny tension, right? Like I, I think sometimes having constraints like Superman can't do this can be really helpful. They, they mm-hmm. can feel like guardrails ar- around you. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. My, I think most, most creative people struggle with anxiety to, to some extent. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're putting our inner thoughts out into the world. What could be bad, you know? Like yeah, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's very, yeah, that yeah. happens. And um, constraints are a way of dealing with it, I think. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Having deadlines, having rules around how stuff is made, having systems for getting your ideas organized, all of those things are super helpful for sure. And obviously, can I ask you something though? Yeah. Can I ask you? Okay. So, so you said that working with all these other folks affected you. If I remember this right, you at least used to write your comics by thumbing them out. Is that true? Um, I've never written in. I've never written in thumbnails, strictly okay, speaking, okay. like drawn thumbnails. I used to okay. r- write in script, just and it was usually just dialogue. It was not even a full script. It was just like, here's okay. stuff people are going to say. And that was you know, a good start, but it wasn't really a fully written thing and evolved into a system where it's a full script on a panel layout. So nothing's in the panels, but descriptions of what's going to be there are in the panels. And I actually originally learned this from and adapted it from Alison Bechtel. Oh, that's Um, what she does? Yeah. So she does this thing and she originally did it in Illustrator and I taught her how to use InDesign and she was like, oh my God, that's amazing. But anyway, use InDesign. So does page design software and have different type styles for dialogue and for narration and then have descriptions and you can make the boxes essentially for where what you're doing and what it does is it gets your brain thinking visually immediately so you're not writing these scenes that are like one line of description that takes three pages you yeah, know how that yeah, is yeah, so yeah, like yeah. Yeah. there's a line of description which is like joe walks down you know walks down the stairs grabs a cup of coffee gets in his car and goes to work and you can write that in one sentence but that takes four pages yeah so if you're doing it visually, then you never end up in that situation. And you can now, and I, I ended up being able to write in a more cinematic way. In my last two books, I wrote that way. I wrote out on the wire okay. and Trish Trash that way. Okay. So it's, there's no drawing on it though. It's just text descriptions yeah. in boxes. Yes. And then there's wow. a thumbnailing, okay. there's a thumbnailing pass after that, where you have those boxes okay. and you do some thumbnails and you build them up and you can change stuff at that point. But yeah, just to keep the the writing going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And make it really flexible. Like you can move stuff around. I feel like you should be interviewing me. Like you are interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to know. I want to know. Yeah, so, no, no. I think it's really, it's like that was a game changer for me because I'd had a really hard time fully utilizing the visual power, the visual narrative power of comics until I started writing in like that, like visual units, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And it also made it a lot easier for editors because editors reading a script don't necessarily, depending on who they are, if they're a commercial yeah, house and they're not familiar right. with comics, they can't really read a script, a comic script effectively. I see. I see. Yeah. Or thumbnails, never mind. But, you know, they'd never be able to. So do that. you do you do like a little sketch before you build it in, mm-hmm. in, in design? You do. Okay. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. you don't. You just, just do it directly, straight. No. Yep. Straight oh, up. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I use a grid, wow. you know, so it's based okay. on like a grid for a b particular book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to give you a demo sometime. <laughs> I would love to see that. I would love to see that. That's not on YouTube somewhere. Uh, I have a I have a post about it. Yeah. So if anybody's okay. listening to this and is like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. By the way, it is not my idea, Alison Bechtel's idea, but I have a post on my site about what's called visual scripting. And okay. uh, it has a whole explanation and a downloadable template for okay. InDesign. I'm going to, I'm going to have to check that out. That's, that does sound you, amazing. Let me know if you use it. That would yeah, be great. <laughs> I will. I will. I know you're deeply committed to your creative work. And yet when it comes time to make the thing, it's like you short circuit. Your inner critic comes roaring out and shuts you down. You find your attention dragged off by some other shiny new object. You can't stop feeling guilty and that you should be focusing on paid work. Your clients, your children, friends, boss, parents constantly demand your attention. Here's the thing, there is nothing wrong with you. There's just a breakdown somewhere in your creative engine and you can repair it. I wanna invite you to join me for the free Creative Engine Masterclass where you'll learn which tactics will backfire when you're trying to get traction on self-generated creative projects and what to do instead. The four essential phases of the creative process you must implement to produce awesome work reliably, and you're probably skipping at least one. The good news hidden in your long history of valiant efforts to make your creative life work, how to diagnose what's off track and keep moving on your work, even when things get really challenging, and the secret to how to predict and avoid the pitfalls that derail you time and time again. This class is totally free and you will get immediate deep clarity into what makes your creative life tick and the specific next step to take to harness the power of your own creative engine. So stop procrastinating and start finishing your most important creative projects when you join the Creative Engine Masterclass at jessicaabel.com engine. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L dot com slash engine. Okay, back to the show. All right. So, okay. We've talked a bunch about organizing your life around creative work. You have two time blocks and stuff. You also have four children and you are married. And I know that that is a very important aspect of your life that you're very devoted to your family. And of course, we've just been going through homeschooling forever and yeah, yeah, pandemic yeah. and all that stuff. And you're trying yeah. to work at home and this is your only income stream. So talk. What was that like? Oh, it was, how did, how it did you was, do all this? Does your I wife mean, work? Uh, she, she doesn't anymore. She did for a while. She was a elementary school teacher for a very long time. And then she was a librarian for a little bit. Now she's running her own business, but it's not at a point yet where it's generating significant income. Hopefully it will soon, but it's not, it's not there yet. Um, but so she is working though. So she has work hours. Yeah. She yeah. She has, business. she, I guess she is. Well, so, so this past year she decided she was going to homeschool our kids. Like, pull them out of zoom school because mm -hmm. like a t the two younger ones. So that was really like a full-time job for her during pandemic. And then now they're, they're back in school and she's trying to figure out how she's going to move forward with this business that she started. But the year, like the pandemic year was amazing in some ways and horrible in the other. I mean, we were, we were really lucky. Like none of us got sick and my income was fairly steady throughout the entire pandemic. But then at the same time, everybody was at home. Like we had six people under the same roof for like a year and a half. 
and it was it was hard. It was hard to maintain boundaries to get work done. And there were times where I just had to be like, like I, I don't really have an office at our in, in our house. Like well, the place I'm sitting in right now is our dining room, and I kind of just took over a, a corner of it. But like during pandemic, the kids would also be working at the dining table on the, on their stuff, and sometimes I just couldn't concentrate, so I would just migrate. Right? I would like I go and see if one of the kids' bedrooms was empty, and I go work there, or we had a table in the backyard. I would work there, but it was uh, it was definitely difficult to to maintain focus. Yeah, I imagine just like having having these people around all the time. Yeah. Fortunately, your wife was able to take the time to sort of be in charge. And that's like what happened with me too, that Matt was like the person in charge. Mm-hmm. So I was mm-hmm. able to, to get c- come done. here and do stuff. Yeah, but it's, yeah. It, you know, it's been really challenging for sure. And overall, in general, like comics and, and creative work, they can really take over all available time and energy. So yeah. have you... Made a very specific kind of, do you have boundaries around that where you're like, this is when I, this is family time. This is what I, I try to end at six. It doesn't always happen, but I try to end at six. And then after that, it's family time. I do have this problem where if, like, if I hit something during my workday, like some kind of a problem that's like a plotting problem or something that's difficult to work out, it'll just end up sticking in my head. Even if my nine-year-old's talking to me. I'll be like nodding my head, but secretly thinking about this plotting problem. So I've been trying to get out of that. Like I heard like meditation's good. So I've been trying to meditate so that when I'm talking to my nine-year-old, even if there's a scripting problem, I'll be able to focus on her words. But my brain, like my brain sometimes feels like a, like a wild elephant that doesn't want to cooperate. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your teaching career and how that fed into what you're doing now. And I know you've been teaching also at Hamlin in an MFA program Mm -hmm. for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about how those things kind of, how that evolved and how, how did you start and then balancing? Cause like, you know, high school teaching, I know you said you ended up being part-time for a long time. It's very demanding. So how did you manage all that at that time? So I, I started teaching when I was, I don't know, I think I was 20, I must have been 24 when I started. So I, I wasn't even that much older than the seniors on campus. And it had been something I'd, I'd thought about for a really long time. So I graduated from college with a degree in computer science. I was a programmer for two years and I realized it wasn't for me. I didn't want to be in a cubicle my whole life. And I was also super interested in comics at the time. But like in the 90s, the American comic scene felt like it was going to collapse. Like Marvel Comics had declared bankruptcy. I remember going to my very first Comic-Con in San Diego. And back then, there were so few people that wanted to go. You could buy tickets at the door the day of, right? So I remember that Sunday, like the Sunday of the very first Comic-Con I had ever gone to, it just felt like on the exhibit floor, there were more exhibitors than there were attendees. You know, it felt like a ghost town. And I was like... Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if this is going to work out as a career. So my plan was, my plan was, I was just going to find another career that I liked, and then just do comics on the side as a as a way. I was like, people waste money playing golf. I'm going to waste money publishing my own comics. So that was my plan. I was going to be a high school teacher and then do comics at the side. In the beginning, the very first year of teaching was my hardest year that I'd ever had until I had kids. I was just exhausted. I think. I was trying to figure out my curriculum. I remember every Friday, 
I would come home, I'd be so tired, I'd fall asleep at like seven. And I would not wake up until the next morning, like 10 the next morning, because I was so tired. So I just didn't get any comics done until the summer. And then and then during the summer. And of course, your I, former roommates are calling you up going like, where yeah. are your pages? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But I, I think that with high school teaching, after a while, you get your, I would say between three to five years, you get your curriculum down, you kind of figure out what you're doing, you develop a reputation on campus, so kids aren't like constantly trying to test you. And at that point, you have, you you can have energy at night, unless it's during finals week or something where you have a ton of grading, you can have like maybe a couple hours a night to work on something else if you want. So for a long time, um, what I would do is I would do maybe a couple hours at night on comics i would catch up during breaks like during winter break and during the summer and that's that's how they fit together and it it worked really well for me i I felt like teaching is very extroverted and then comics is not comics is like the exact opposite it's super introverted And, and for me they felt like they came out of two very different energy buckets i don't think i could have been like a programmer and also a comic book artist. Because for me, those would have come out of the same energy bucket. Yes, I totally see that. Was your family supportive of your life choices, being a teacher and then becoming a cartoonist? Your parents and your siblings, whatever? My parents were not supportive. I guess, you know, that's not fair. My mom was okay. My dad was not. My dad, like when I told him that I was going to leave my programming job, and become a high school teacher and also like focus on comics he like started shaking and then he got so upset he started shaking (laughs) and he used to when i was a a high school teacher for the first until american born chinese came out actually every six months he would send me a little envelope and there would be like newspaper clippings of like want ads like apple computer is looking for programmers or like they'd be like articles comparing salaries across different professions and of course you're in like Silicon Valley. I mean, that's where you yeah, live. Yeah. So like it w- yeah. would not have been hard for you to find whatever, it, whatever that thing was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe. No, I mean, Apple jobs are hard to come by, but I probably could have found like a program well, job mean, for a smaller company. Yeah. 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 So did, but when American born Chinese came out and became a big hit, so this is 10 years later, by the way, did he stop with the envelopes? He stopped with the envelopes. So I went home to visit him. And he showed me this newspaper clipping. It was actually a clipping from the World Journal, which is this Chinese language newspaper. And their living section had an article about American-born Chinese. So he showed that to me, and I never got another envelope again after that. That's very heartwarming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least, a... <laughs> at least when somebody else acknowledged your yeah. success, he could acknowledge it. That's really, yeah, that's, that's good. Right. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you did leave your teaching job, and I actually have a question that I normally get to questions at the end, but this is so relevant to what we're talking about right now. I want to bring it in. So GR asks, what skills from the engineering field did you find yourself accessing or were a hindrance in your work as a cartoonist and which skills from your education career? And this person is a cartoonist who works in education and had a career as a ceramic engineer. So coming from a personal place. Okay. So I I was a programmer and I really see a lot of parallels between like coding and storytelling i mean comic storytelling specifically right so in coding really what you're doing is you're taking this big abstract idea and then you're breaking it up into sequential concrete pieces right this abstract idea becomes these sequential lines of code and it all has to make sense or it's not going to compile 
comics is very similar. You're taking this big abstract idea. Anytime I'm talking about a book that I want to do with my editor, it's all super abstract. It's like this big fuzzy cloud. And you have to take that big fuzzy cloud and break it up into these concrete pictures, these panels that fit in sequence. So I really feel like coding was good training for me for comics. In terms of teaching, I think what I got most out of teaching was figuring out how to be clear. Like when you're when you're delivering a lecture or when you're creating a handout, it has to be clear. Your life is going to be hard if it's not clear. You're going to have to teach it over and over and over again until it's clear. So I think there's something about that too that applies to comics. With comics, I do think like when I'm when I'm teaching comics through Hamlin, I usually tell the students like unless you're being confusing on purpose, unless it plays a narrative role, you should go for clarity above all else, right? You don't want mm-hmm. you don't want your reader to wonder what the panel is supposed to be communicating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I think too, like you have to sequentialize what you're trying to teach when you're teaching, yeah, you know, you have to put right. it into steps that make sense and tell a story of the content. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's funny, I used to teach at the School of Visual Arts and one of the other teachers there is Gary Panter. And so Gary visited my class, visited his class, whatever, saw how he teaches. And what's interesting is Gary Panter is a very experimental cartoonist and pushes all kinds of boundaries all the time. But his teaching is like almost entirely focused on clarity. So he's always saying like, what is this guy doing? Where is he going? What's next? Like, okay, so from here to here, what gets people to explain it? It's really interesting. Like that's, that's his focus as a teacher. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think like even as a kid, I realized this without even realizing that I realized it, right? Like you would get these books that were drawn, like superhero books that were drawn. They looked amazing. They looked dynamic. But then when you try to read them, you can't read them. You can't make heads or tails of them. And then mm-hmm. this other book that did not appeal to my 12-year-old mind immediately when I flipped it open. But when I brought it home, I enjoyed it way more simply because I could understand how the panels related to each other. Well, and probably they were like well-written. I mean, there's probably yeah. something else yeah, to it right. too. Yeah. Like there was something worth getting out of all that clarity. Yeah. That's also yeah. important. But so when you quit your day job, when you first reduced and then quit your teaching job, was that cool? I mean, you've said you miss things about it. So like yeah. what, you know, is it, is quitting your day job all it's cracked up to be is what I'm asking you. I really liked my day job. I had been there for a very long time. I had lots of friends on the faculty. There are actually two other cartoonists on faculty who are still there. Tin Pham, who's done a book with First Second, and Brianna Lowenson, who just signed a book with Fanographics. So we have like our own little comics community within the faculty of that school. So it was just, it was a lot of fun. It was nice to have people to eat lunch with. And I liked being part of a community in general. I liked having my own classroom, all of that. So leaving was hard. It was a really, it was a really difficult decision. I remember right after I went into my principal's office to tell her that I wasn't going to come back next year. I just had a, it felt like breaking up with somebody. That's what it felt like. Like I couldn't eat. I had a hard time sleeping for a couple weeks and I had all these doubts about whether I'd made the right decision. And then after that, I worked for DC. I began working for DC. I wrote 10 issues on the main Superman title. And I have to tell you that year working on those comics I think it's okay for me to say this now because it's been a while. But that was like the worst year I've ever had in comics. It was so hard for like a billion different reasons. And I think it took me a while to get to a point where I started liking it. I started liking being full-time at comics. 
So now, I, I mean, I still think about teaching, right? I wouldn't mind ending my working career as a teacher. But for now, at least, I feel like I, I have enough projects that I want to get through that I don't have time to teach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're leaving Hamlin for now as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So Hamlin, I started at Hamlin nine years ago. And then this semester will be my last semester there. So I'm, I'm going to be leaving Hamlin. Same reason. I just, I have a lot of projects I want to get through. So mm-hmm. until I get through them, I'm not going to be able to teach. Right. Yeah. No, I get it. And it's, it is tough, right? Because there's so many wonderful things about teaching and communicate, you know, talking mm-hmm. about the work with people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have so many more questions I want to ask you and limited time. So I'm going to pick here. <laughs> So one thing I want to ask you about, though, is when you, so you'd been self-publishing and then publishing in a small way for a number of years, and then you came out with American Poor Chinese. It was a huge hit, won tons of awards, tons of attention. How did that change your, how did it change your life? How did it change your self-conception? How did it change, like, did it make things easier, harder? I mean, what happens when you have a big hit like that? Practically speaking, I mean, it was, it was crazy, right? It was just completely unexpected, I think. And in a lot of ways, I felt like I was this beneficiary of a lot of stuff that had been happening in comics for a while. Like Blankets. I think of Craig Thompson's Blankets as the book that really created a, a space in the minds of librarians and teachers for literary YA graphic novels, right? If Blankets hadn't happened, I don't know. I just, I just don't think the landscape would have been the same when American Born Chinese came out. So in a lot of ways, I feel like I was kind of at the right place at the right time as this wave of, of awareness about comics was building up within mm-hmm. academia, within the library market. And after that, the really practical thing that happened was um, I got to sign another book with For Second, and then I was able to go part-time at my job. So we were on a block schedule. I would spend one day at school teaching, and then the other day at home working on comics. And that was a great balance. That was like the balance that I had for almost a decade, maybe, I don't know, seven, eight years after that. Beyond that, I think the thing that happened was just something that I wasn't ever expecting, right? I was expecting to work in education full-time for my entire career and always just do comics on the side. So it changed what I thought of as as my career, what, how I thought of my career path. Yeah, I, w- I can see that, that it's just all of a sudden it's like, oh, my expectations are just blown to smithereens now in a good way. Yeah. You know, now we have to think, of it. did it make it hard to do your next book? Did you feel the weight of expectation? It did. It was super hard. Yeah. So the next book I ended up doing as a collaboration in part because it made it easier, right, to team up with a friend of mine. So I did... Let's say I think the next book that came out was Eternal Smile, which I did with Derek mm-hmm. Kirk Kim. And we'd been friends for a really long time. We kind of came up in comics together. Mm-hmm. And that was super helpful to, to you know, have Derek to lean on for, for the second mm-hmm. book. And then after that, I did a book with Tin Pham, who was also a, mm-hmm. a, a teacher at Bishop O'Dowd. So um, right. that, was, that was helpful as well. So that kind of bridged that, like getting into feeling like getting yourself comfortable with the new person you are in the world in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Uh I mean, (laughs) yeah. I don't, I don't know if like, I I think it, I think as a cartoonist, you know, it was definitely different, right? Like I I got to go on 
speaking engagements and, um, and and that sort of thing, which I hadn't done before that. Uh, right. But like at home and with my cartoonist friends, it didn't feel that. Oh yeah, no, no. I, I mean, but yeah. <laughs> in the in the world, like people, you know, oh, it's Gene Yang, you know, like that's that kind of reaction, you know, it's a different. It, yeah, it was yeah. different. Yeah, like going to a yeah. library conference, especially what was just a, a different mob. Yeah, I don't know if it was mob, <laughs> but at least there'd be crazy. like yeah. <laughs> it's more like when I'm sitting at a table trying to sell my comics, I would actually sell comics as opposed to just sit there. Right. That would be a good thing. A good thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and there's all, the other aspect of it is that um, you are unfortunately one of the first people, and I mean, unfortunately, because I wish there were more, you know, throughout history, who's representing the Asian and Asian American experience in a centered way. Like, not just there's some Asians in the story, but like, this is, it's normal, like normalizing that experience and just helping everybody kind of see through the experiences of Asian Americans. And so um, it seems to me that you may have also, I mean, I'm sure that's one of the reasons why uh, American born Chinese was as as successful as it was, because it it was a huge lack that you filled, like a gap that needed filling. Um, But I wonder if that also set up some weird dynamics for you. It did. Like, okay, so the, the, the book that I do with Tin Fam, it's called Level Up. And um, and uh, it's okay. I think it's okay for me to tell the story because uh, Mark Siegel, my editor, has told the story in public. But um, I, we, we, put in a, we put in a proposal for that book, right? And it was approved. And then I submitted an outline and it was approved. And then, um, and then we started working on it. So I would thumbnail it. Tin would do the pencils, I would do the inks, and then he would do the colors. Uh, it, was, uh, it ended up being like a 250-page book. And we got to page, and we worked sequentially, right, on it. And we got to page 240-something, and Mark called us up and was like, this is, this is not working. And he was totally right. It wasn't working. <laughs> but we had to start over from the very beginning. Oh, Mark. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, so, but it, it was the right call. It was just the right call a little bit further down in the process that I wanted. But but one of his critiques was it felt like I was like trying to write um, about Asian American issues because I had to like, you know, mm. like, like I was, I was trying to tackle these issues from a, from a vantage point of obligation. Um, and mm-hmm. I, and I think, I think that that critique was a hundred percent correct. Like I had to work through that to get back to like a more organic story, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause that's what I've always loved about your work is it is, it's just in there. Like it just is. And that's the thing that makes it so effective. I think in, you know, helping diverse stories exist, you know, is that it's not about like, Hey, look, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's <yeah>. just <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. thanks. I mean, but I did that, right. I did the, Hey, look for 240 something pages before Mark was like, this, but you this, didn't publish this, this it. Is what it is. We didn't publish it. Yeah. I think we still have it in a filing cabinet somewhere. Well, that would be interesting one day for a grad student to do a paper about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so keep, hold on to it. Um, okay, so I want to ask you if you ever felt like uh, if if you ever felt like in your career there was a time when you were like, "This is a huge mistake," and then what did you do? And that maybe that's um, the moment, like that book. But was there anything else where you're like, "Yeah, that moment was one." And then and then when uh, when I was working on Superman, 
I, I also had moments when mm. I regretted it, right? So when I was doing the my my run on the main Superman story, I, I think um, there are lots of things that were just it, it took me a long time to get used to. One was, um, uh, like um, the the pace of monthly superhero comics is is just really frantic, um, and then um, and then Superman being a being who he is as a character. He was tied into other books. You know, there are certain things I just mm. couldn't do with him. Uh, uh, Too many constraints, in, maybe. Yeah, writing in universe. Yeah, exactly. Too many constraints. And, the, and constraints that were constantly changing. So because mm. I was writing in universe, sometimes things would happen in another book that would affect mm. what, what was happening in mine, right? So I would wow. plan something out and I wouldn't be able to do it because of that. Uh, a friend of mine, Greg Pak. Have you hung out with Greg before? You, no, no. So he's a he's a superhero writer, mm-hmm. and um, he's he spent most of his comics writing career in the in the like the they're not mainstream anymore, right? Like that's in the superhero world. Um, he says that writing superhero comics is like improv, like you mm-hmm. like people in the audience are just constantly throwing stuff at you, and you just have to figure out how to work it into the story. So all of that really took me a long time to get used to and and i did have times when i was working on that run where i was like dude maybe i should have stayed a teacher i was happy as a teacher i don't know what i'm doing but the the happy ending on that is i feel like eventually i did get used to it and i i got into a situation with um editors that i really like like my my editor right now at dc is a guy named paul kaminsky and i think um his sensibility and mine mesh much better Right. And, and I've been able to do work at D.C. that I feel much happier about. Well, and you've also mostly worked what is the opposite of in universe, out of universe. Like you've worked on other like the Superman versus the Klan. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, not it's part of the main storyline, right? Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's not. Yeah. And, and that's been like the, the fun part of doing things that are not in continuity like that is you get to take pieces of continuity that you like and kind of interpret them the way you want. That sounds like a lot more fun to me. Although describing writing superhero comics as improv does make it go make it, you know, the yes and. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's right. kind of that's kind of fun. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes and. But there's also like people who really love these characters, which is great, but they also have really intense opinions about what happens to them. Mhm. Really visual visible. <laughs> Yeah. public intense opinions. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's a bit of a problem. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, one last question, which is things changed again in 2016 when you won the MacArthur Grant. Um, what was that like? I mean, suddenly you're not just, I'm a best-selling author who people love my books and give them awards, but I am now a genius. Thank you. <laughs> that was, I, I got the, I got a call from Chicago that morning and it was an unrecognized number. I wasn't planning on getting it, but I don't even know why, but I was in my car and I got it and it was the MacArthur Foundation calling me to tell me I got this, got this grant. So that was the end of my work day. It was like 10, nine in the morning or something. That was the end of my work day. I couldn't concentrate on anything else after that. At least you didn't crash. Yeah. At least I didn't crash. I was, I was, <laughs> I was pulling out of my driveway. So I just pulled right back in and then I called my wife after I was <laughs> I was then talking to the MacArthur Foundation. I, I mean, it was, it, it's, it's this crazy thing. It's this crazy thing. So afterwards, um, they give you the option of going to a retreat where you meet all of the other people in the same class as you, right, who, who also got grants. And, um, 
and each of us did a presentation about our work. So I go up there and I do a presentation about Superman, which I was working on, and um, and Secret Coders, I think I was working on at the time. And then the like the the next like one of the next presentations was this other guy who was working on technology that would take carbon emissions and use sunlight to turn it back into usable fuel. You know, like uh, and you're like. <laughs> yeah exactly like <laughs> like this is just so weird it's so weird but um but like very practically speaking it 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 solved uh, a problem for us right like as a cartoonist i've always wondered how am i going to pay for my kids college so that's that's what the bulk of that is is going to um and the, the other issue that it solved was i just never had a space of my own to work at in my house. Uh, I was a nomad and, um, and I was able to use some of that money to, to rent a space for myself that I used up until pandemic hit, you know, outside of my Wow. Home. That's great. Yeah. But so it didn't, it didn't uh, rock your world in other ways. It wasn't like, how, how do I function now? I mean, like I said, I'm going to be talking to Alison um, Bechtel in a few months mm-hmm. and I've mm-hmm. talked to her about this before also, cause she also was a, is a MacArthur recipient and she's just like this screwed me up man (laughs) i'm sure there's there's a more complicated story there we didn't get into it but um yeah yeah i mean i think it helped that allison uh got it got it before right so it wasn't like like she was was she the first or the second it was it was ben wasn't there somebody before her i I don't don't remember you have to ask her yeah. 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 But yeah. But there, I mean, Linda Berry got it. I feel like I'm, I'm glad that it's becoming a thing, right? That, that mm-hmm. car- it would be, it would be great if they had at least one or two cartoonists get it every, every year. That'd yeah. Be awesome. It'd be amazing. Um, okay. So I want to move on to questions. We just have a few questions that I, I want to make sure to get to and we're running short on time. So um, let's see. Uh, Leone asks, Gene, with your coding skills, have you thought of making in- interactive stories with your comics or transmedia of any kind? Yeah, I did one comic. Um, so I got a master's in education, and my final project was a was an interactive comic that I think I did on Flash, which doesn't really exist anymore. But I think you can still find it. It's called uh, Mr. Yang and Mosley the Alien Teach Factoring. So it was it was. Oh, yeah. uh, it was a comic that was based on a lesson that I did for my algebra two class, like a couple of years before. So right. I've and done this that. also ties into your uh, TED talk and like, you know, mm-hmm. comics and education kind of that whole thread, which we haven't had any time to get into, but yeah, I would love awesome. to do more though. I would love to do mm-hmm. more on that vein. I just, yeah. It, maybe, maybe in the next thing after, right. after the projects I'm working on, I would love to do more. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, which relates to Jazz's question. What are your long-term goals as someone who works in comics? Do you imagine working comics for a long time? Yeah, I would like to, um, like, I'd like to always be making comics, you know, in, in some form until I die. Like, the what I heard about Will Eisner, I, I don't know if this is just an urban legend or what, but what I heard was for his final book, he was working on it and he felt something wrong inside of his chest and then he finished it he finished his book he dropped off his pages at the post office checked himself into the hospital and just never came out i don't know if that's true or not but that's that's what i've heard and there is something very romantic about that right about just creating work until the very end um 
So I, I would like to, it'd be fun to finish my like working career as a teacher, but even, even if I'm lucky enough to retire, it'd be nice to still be making comics, right? Oh, so you're seeing like comics is not working and teaching as working is what you're saying. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I mean, comics is... So you slack, are you not working now, are you? This is what I'd say. Comics is, comics is work if you're trying to hit other people's deadlines. But if you're just doing it on your own without having to, work, having to worry about other people's deadlines, then I think it's, it's just pure self-expression, right? It's not a, this in-between of... You know, like it's not a, uh, a, a compromise between self-expression and the necessities of daily life. Right. So um, final question from Leonie. Um, do you ever get the feeling you may be reaching more kids with your stories than you ever could as a teacher in just one class and one institution? Yeah, I think that's definitely true for, for all of us, right? For I mean, look, look at Raina. Raina's the, the perfect example of this. So the the number of kids who have been touched by her work, I mean, it's just like millions and, and millions, right? Millions of kids feel better about getting braces because of Reina's work. But at the same time, there is something very special about being one-on-one with a student, you know, like teaching a class and having a student come in and afterwards uh, for office hours, forming a relationship with them and, um, and kind of, you know, mentoring them through a year. I think, I think there's something, uh, I, I, I guess it's, it's, it's being, it's a, uh, it's broadness worth versus depth. I think you can mm-hmm. get much deeper when you have a face-to-face relationship with, with a student. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's very, uh, and, and having a balance of both those things is yeah. the best, I think. Having kind yeah. of an ability to, to spread a message widely, but also then to go deep with certain people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. I, I agree. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. It has been a pleasure and an honor. Um, I'm so thrilled we got time to, to talk about all this stuff. Yeah, me too. Me too, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. This was great. How can people find more of your work? Where should they go to check out what you're doing? Uh, so I am on on Twitter and Instagram at Yang, Uh And I also have a, a website, jeanlunyang.com. I think your website is jeanyang.com, is it not? It is. It's both. You could, oh, you could oh, put my okay. middle name in or not, and it'll bring you to okay. the same spot. Perfect. Perfect. So thank you for being here with us, and I will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Jessica. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us today for The Autonomous Creative. Our show is produced by Matt Madden. Our production coordinator is Lucina Boyhandian, and our production assistant is Rhiannon Sunday. Music is by Matt Madden, and I'm your host, Jessica Abel. You can find all our takeaways, as well as any links and extras we mentioned today, plus transcripts, in the show notes. Find everything you need at acpod.show. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, and it would help us immensely if you would take a second and pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. It just takes a few seconds, but it's actually a huge help to us and to our guests to get this podcast suggested to new listeners. We appreciate your help so much, and we'll see you next time on The Autonomous Creative.